bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. The Bible reminds us that it is the responsibility of everything that has breath to praise the Lord. That, that means even if you don't have a dime in your pocket right now, if you can do this, you should praise God. That, that, that means even if you woke up this morning and every part of your body hurt, if he put breath in your lungs this morning, it is your responsibility to praise him. The Bible says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Uh, there's much to do and unfortunately not much time to do it. You may be seated. We live currently in a culture that at least in my lifetime has never been more antagonistic to the gospel and to Christians than they are right now. And the reason for this animus, the reason for this animosity is that a, a number of so-called Christians have misrepresented represented the faith using the faith as a tool to promote their own, own political and, and social agenda and it is our responsibility to contend for the faith to make sure that the faith that the world sees is that the is the faith that the apostles received from Jesus and passed down to us so if you have your copy of God's word with you this morning, I want you to turn in there with me uh, to the book of Jude, to the book of Jude. Now, if you've been to Sunday school at any point in your life, you, you'll notice that I didn't say what chapter of the book of Jude you need to turn to because our Bible readers know that Jude only has one chapter. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude and and if you all want to know where, where Jude is, go to the end of your Bible. At the end of your Bible, you'll find a book there called Revelation. If you've gone to Revelation, you've gone too far. Now, at Revelation, make a left. Don't go too far now, because if you get to 3 John, you've passed Jude. So end of your Bible, turn one book over and you'll find the book of Jude. Jude, verse 3 and verse 4. Jude, verse 3 and verse 4. I want to read to you this section of God's word. Then I want to breathe a quick word of prayer. And then we'll listen as the Spirit hopefully speaks through me to you this morning. Jude, verse 3 and 4. I'm reading out of the Christian standard version of God's holy word. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, but please feel free to follow in whatever version of God's word that you have on hand. But thankfully, uh, we do have God's word on screen, so I'm going to read from there. Jude 3, verse 4 reads this way. Their friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I feel compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Verse 4. 
for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Can we go back to verse three for a moment? I want to highlight the exhortation that Jude makes in, in, verse, in verse three. He, he, he says this, that the Christian community is to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people, the word of God for the people of God. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we pray that you would teach us great and incredible truths contained in your word so that our lives would be different, we pray, Lord God. We, we know that you want to speak to us this morning. And it's our desire to hear you. So remove any distraction, any sin, anything that would uh, not allow us to hear the implanted word of God that would be able to save our soul. And, and as always, Father God, because we know we will encounter you through your word, Father. We pray that you and you alone would be exalted as your word is explained. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all who are God's people said, amen. You wouldn't be able to, to recognize this if you ever saw me and my brother standing next to each other. I'm six foot five and, and roughly 200 and whatever pounds. And, and my brother, he's five foot 10 and 180 pounds. But, but there was a time in our youth where my brother and I could wear the same clothes more, more appropriately, where I could wear my brother's clothes. Now, there's something that you need to know about my brother. To this day, he is the most fashionable person that I have ever met in my life. He, he's the type of guy that even if he was just going across the street to a bodega, he'd have to put on something fresh. He couldn't just wear anything and leave the house with it. And my brother, whenever he left the house, he had to have on something brand name. Dada Supreme, FUBU, Kuji Sweaters, Echo, Fat Farm, Pele Pele Jeans, Carl Canine, Jabot. Now, now some of you are like, what? But if you are a person of a certain age, if you grew up in the 1990s, then you know that, that those brands were the height of fashion in our day. And, and not only did my brother know how to wear brand name clothes, my, my brother was the type to make sure that everything was crispy and clean. He used to put creases in his jeans. That's how sharp my brother was. And he was so particular about his, his clothes, he would always ensure that he hung up his shirts and pants in the closet in the same exact way. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And he hung them up just so I could sneak in his closet and wear his clothes to school. Now, if there ever was a 
pretty cute new girl in school, I had to try to impress him <laughs> by wearing my brother's clothes. Now, fortunately for me, my older brother is eight years older than I am, which means when he was in high school, I was in elementary school. He would leave and go to school really early in the morning, and I would sneak in his closet and get whatever I wanted to wear. Now, the first time I wore his clothes, I, I realized a, a huge lesson. I wore his clothes and, and I hung them back in his closet. And when he got back home, because he was so particular about how he hung up his clothes, he recognized right away that I had worn it. And, and that day, he wore me out. He beat me so hard I could barely get up the next day. And, and you would think that would stop me from ever wearing his clothes ever again. But like I said, there was a cute girl in my class. <laughs> and we were going on a field trip. And I decided once again to, to wear my brother's clothes. But, but I had paid attention to him throughout the course of the week. I saw how he ironed his clothes. And I saw how he hung his clothes in the closet. So when he left that day, I, I paid attention to, to where I got his pants from. And I paid attention to, to where I got the shirt from. And, and I put them on. And that whole day in school, I made sure nobody touched me. I made sure I didn't spill anything on his clothes. And, and I got back home real early, put his clothes in the closet exactly like how I found him. I even re-ironed his jeans so he could think nothing happened to him. And, and when he got home, I sat on the couch and waited. He went back into the bedroom, the bedroom that we shared together and he put up his clothes, and he walked out into the living room, and he looked at me. My hands and my knees were, were shaking at the time. And he said to me, did you drink all the Kool-Aid? <laughs> I had fooled him. I, I, I had fooled him because I learned an important lesson about how to put back his clothes when I wore them. I learned that if I wore his clothes, I had to put them back in the same condition that I had found them in. Unstained, unspoiled, so as to look undisturbed. And really, this is the message that Jude has about the Christian faith this morning as, as believers. We are not simply called to put our faith in the gospel. We are also called to guard and preserve the gospel, which means how we got the gospel is how we need to leave the gospel to the generation that comes behind us. We need to make sure that we leave the gospel unstained, by our traditions and our customs, unspoiled by our political and social ideologies so as to look undisturbed to the people who will receive the gospel after us.
The letter of Jude is, is one of the smallest letters of the New Testament. The 25 verses that comprise the book of Jude contains barely 450 words. You can read the book of Jude in, in one setting in less than 10, make, 10 minutes, making Jude the sh fifth shortest book of the Bible. But the length of the book of Jude says nothing about the depth of the book of Jude. Jude may be undersized, but it packs a powerful theological point. Jude introduces himself in verse 1 of this book. We are told that the author of this letter is a man named Jude who tells us two things about himself. First, he is Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. And he is Jude, the brother of James. Now, if you went to Sunday school, you already know that James also had a brother named Jesus. So if we're putting two and two together, this Jude is also Jesus's brother. He was Mary's son. Wow. Now, Jude, before he ever became a believer, like the rest of his family, was a skeptic. Do, do you know that Jesus's own brothers did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the Son of God. And, and Jesus doesn't strike me as the type to, to be at dinner telling his other siblings, you, you, you know, your daddy, really not my daddy, your yo daddy named Joseph, but my daddy named, named God. I, I don't think that sounds like something that Jesus would say. His, his own brothers initially didn't believe that, that Jesus was the son of God. That wasn't until the, the resurrection where his brothers could see evidence of who he was. He, they could see the, the nail prints in, in his hands and in his feet. And, and because of the evidence of the cross, because of the evidence of the resurrection, Jesus' brothers came to faith in him. Jude never says that Jesus is his brother because Jude recognized his past as a skeptic and because Jude was, was also humble. He simply wanted to be described and identified as, as Jude, Jesus's servant, not Jude, Jesus's brother. We are told a, a little bit about who Jude was through the stories that we have about Jesus's family in the Gospels. But we know absolutely nothing about the Christian community that Jude is writing to you. You would expect it in an introduction like we have in Paul's letters. Paul would tell, like, like Jude would tell us the place that he is writing to and who are the people that he is writing for. But, but Jude tells us none of those things. He, he simply talks about this Christian community and he says two things about them. He says that they are called of God and that they are loved by God. Now, now this description of this unknown Christian community is a description of each and every one of us 
who have put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. We are called of God, which means that God handpicked us to believe in him through his son Jesus. And, and we are loved by God, which, which means that God called you not because of something that you did to earn that call, but rather God called you because he loved you. It's God's love that compels the call of God. What we do know, however, about this Christian community is that at some point in their recent history, a group of so-called Christians invaded their ranks and began to promote a gospel that was different from the gospel that this Christian community had come to believe in. And Jude writes this letter to argue against the gospel that was being preached in the church. Have you ever wanted to go into a particular direction, but circumstances forced you to change your mind? And this is what the presence of these false Christians forced Jude to do. Jude had hoped to write a happier and friendlier letter, but the circumstances of the people that he is writing to forced Jude to write a more aggressive and a more authoritative letter, one in which Jude will urge the recipients of this letter to avoid a particular course and adopt a particular brand of thinking. Circumstances forced Jude to change from writing a letter about shared Christian beliefs and experiences to a letter reminding the church of their sacred Christian responsibility. What is at stake for Jude in the writing of this letter is the sanctity of the gospel. Jude writes that his new agenda in verse 3 is to urge this Christian community to contend for the faith. Nowhere in the letter of Jude does Jude elaborate what he means by the faith. Jude assumes that the people he is writing to have a clearer understanding of that faith. But, but this is an assumption that I don't want to make here and now. The, the faith is the doctrines of the Christian life. The faith is the gospel. And if you've never heard the message of the gospel, let me share that with you in brief. You are a sinner. And the Bible says that as a sinner, you deserve eternal separation from God. And that there's nothing that you can give to God there is nothing that you can offer God that will cause him to pardon your sin. But what you could not do for yourself, God did for you. God sent his son Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And the Bible tells us that Jesus died a vicarious death, which means Jesus died for you. All the pain, all the agony, all the suffering that Jesus endured was not because 
he did something wrong. It's because you and I did something wrong. And Jesus offered his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. And to confirm that that sacrifice was accepted, God raised Jesus up from the dead. But the message of the gospel does not stop right there. There is a, a second part of the gospel that is equally important. The, the gospel is not simply the announcement that Jesus is Savior. The gospel is also the declaration that Jesus is King. And every letter of the New Testament, they will stress this dual aspect of the life of Jesus. Jesus is not simply the Lamb of God who offered his life as a pardon for the sin of man. Jesus is also the king who died on a cross as his throne and who deserves your allegiance. There's a two-part aspect to the gospel. That Jesus is your savior and Jesus is your king. And Jude will stress both aspects in his letter. In the second part of verse 3, Jude will say two things about this faith. First, he says that this faith, the gospel message, is a complete message. The phrase once and for all refers to the fact that the essence of the gospel cannot change over time. How the message was presented over 2,000 years ago is how the message should be presented today. You and I should not add anything more to the gospel than what Jesus has already added to the gospel. And what this means for Jude is that when it comes to the gospel, there is no such thing as new revelation. If someone comes to you, a preacher, a teacher, a pastor, you, you, your favorite televangelist, and says God has given him a new vision, a new revelation, and added to the gospel, shut your ears off. Turn off the TV. Because when it comes to the gospel, if it's new, it ain't true. <laughs> we used to sing this song in the church that I grew up in. We, it went like this. Give me that old time religion. That old time religion. It was, it was good enough for mom and dad. It, it was good enough for the Hebrew children. And it should be good enough for, for you. And, and, and if Jew knew that song, he would have included that song in his letter. That the old time religion... The one that Jesus started is the one that you and I should receive. Not only is the message of faith, the, the faith that Jude talks about is a complete one. Jude says that's the one that has been passed on to you. He says in, also in the second part of verse 3 that this message has been entrusted to the saints the word entrusted means to be handed over. 
It means to be delivered. It's almost as if Jude envisions every generation of Christian believers as part of this great relay race. If you've ever watched any track and field event, then at some point you, you've seen and, and you know what a relay race is. A relay race is a competition where members of a team take turns competing and finishing parts of a course. And when they are finished their portion of the race, they hand over the baton to the next racer. And the most important thing when it comes to running a relay race is to make sure that you never, you said it right, drop the baton. Because if you drop the baton, you are immediately disqualified. Believe it or not, if you're a person of faith in here this morning, you're running this great relay race. This relay race started with the apostles. Jesus called 12 extremely flawed men and gave them the responsibility of preaching his gospel to the world. And in the course of preaching this gospel in all the world, these 12 men were threatened. These 12 men were imprisoned. And these 12 men died for the faith, but they never dropped the baton. They handed that baton over to the next generation. And like the previous generation, the next generation suffered, bled, and died for the sake of the faith, but they never dropped the baton. There's this story of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was, was one of the disciples of John, the John who wrote the, the fourth gospel and, and the first, second, and third letters of John. And, and Polycarp, they say, was threatened that if he did not rescind his faith, they would have him killed. And Polycarp said, I have served my Lord for 86 years, and he never abandoned me. How can I now abandon my Savior and my King? And he died as a result. Polycarp was more willing to die than to let the baton hit the ground. And he passed it on to the succeeding generation. And that baton has been placed in the hands of men named Augustine, Aquinas, Whitfield, Wesley, Bonhoeffer, King, Gardner Taylor, Edwin Cologne. And that baton has been passed now down to you. And it is now your responsibility as a faithful member of the Christian community to ensure that you hold on to that baton without ever letting it touch the ground. Regardless of what you go through, regardless of how many trials you endure, regardless of how much you suffer, it is your responsibility 
to grab a hold of that baton tightly and firmly and pass it on to your children, your grandchildren, and the generation that comes after you. And in saying that the Christian faith has been entrusted to you, what Jude is saying about the Christian faith is that the Christian faith is, is, is a trust. You do know what a, what a trust is, right? A trust is, is a relationship between two people in which the one who owns a thing or holds a right to a thing gives possession of that thing or that right to another person. And it is the responsibility of the person now holding the trust to care for that right or thing in accordance with the wishes of the owner. If someone has ever loaned you anything, if you've ever borrowed something from anyone, then you have been involved in a trust relationship. And how do you treat the things that you borrow from someone? How do you treat the things that someone gives to you to, to hold on for them? Uh -huh. I'll tell you how you should treat it. Growing up, my family, we, we didn't own a car. My first car I owned was when I was 24 years old. But fortunately, growing up in Miami, uh, we, we, we didn't absolutely need a car. I can get anywhere I wanted to get, just like New York, on public transportation. But every once in a while, we, we needed a car. When we had to go grocery shopping or, or run some errand, we had to have a car. And there was a, a man who lived on our block who was always kind enough to let us borrow his car. We would run our errands for that day. We would, we would go grocery shopping. And my mom would always make sure to do two things before she returned it. Regardless of how clean it was when we got it, she would take it to the car wash and wash the car. And, and regardless of where the tank was when we got it, if it was on E, we would take it to the gas station and we would completely fill the tank. Now, this was back in the day <laughs> when gas was like a dollar and five cents a gallon. <laughs> I doubt my mother would do it now, but, but you get the point. That's, that's one of the, the lessons that, that I learned from my mother that, that I still hold on to. When someone gives you something to borrow, you have possession of it. Treat that thing better than you would treat it as if it belonged to you. And, and if we all understand that we have a responsibility to the earthly things that we are entrusted with, how much more should we value, should we guard, should we keep the heavenly gospel that God has entrusted unto us. We should be willing to die for the faith to make sure that that faith is accurately placed in the hands 
of the next generation. And Jude feels so strongly about preserving the trust that has been given to us. Jude says that we should fight for it. The book of Jude contains one admonition, contains one command that Jude will elaborate on in the course of the book. And that one command is what we see on the screen. We should contend for the faith. Jude borrows the language of contend from athletic and military world. The word contend was used in, in Jude's day to describe athletes as they competed against each other. It was used to describe two soldiers as they fought against one another. But now Jude applies that word and here and says, it is the responsibility of every believer. And I, and I want to stress this. Jude is writing this letter not to pastors, not to elders, not to deacons, but Jude is writing this letter to the church. He's saying that it is the responsibility of everyone who names the name of Christ to fight for the gospel, to preserve the integrity of the gospel. Verse 4 tells us what to do. Verse 3, rather, I'm sorry, tells us what to do. Verse 4 is why we need to do it. Jude, in verse 4, introduces us to a group of people who were interlopers, people who had snuck into the church, who were using the faith as a license to promote immoral behavior. In verse 4, Jude never describes the nature of their immorality. He simply says about them that this immorality was connected to the denial of the sovereignty and the lordship of Christ. This, not, this does not mean that, that their immorality was connected with some doctrinal error. What Jude means by this is that there were people in the church who refused to completely surrender their lives to Jesus. Rather, they were presuming on the grace of God, using God's grace as an excuse to do whatever they wanted. We all know about the nature of God's grace. It is the grace of God that leads to the forgiveness of God. Those who have received the grace of God have their sins completely forgiven, both here and now and in eternity. Now, upon hearing that, some people may think that the grace of God is actually a, a, a get-out-of-sin-free card, that now that I'm a recipient of God's grace, I can do whatever it is I please. And that's the problem with what was going on in, in the church that Jude is writing to. They heard about the, the grace of God. And upon hearing the grace of God, they said that now that my sins are completely forgiven, I can do whatever it is. But, but those of us who, who have truly received the grace of God know that the grace of God compels us not to sin more, but to sin less. It's because... God has forgiven me. It's because God 
has given me his grace that I now want to turn completely away from my sin, but not so for the people that Jude is talking about. They use the grace of God to promote their own selfish and sensual agenda rather than seeing the faith as a trust that they needed to protect. They, they saw the faith as a tool to promote their own agenda. Jude will later condemn the people of verse 4. And he will say to those people that the gospel should never be a tool that anyone uses to promote their own immoral agenda. And if Jude was willing to say that about the people in his day, don't you think the Jude would also be willing to say that about the people in our day who use the gospel as a tool to promote, promote their own immoral agenda? I open this sermon by, by saying that we live in a culture that is more antagonistic to the Christian faith than ever before. And it's with good reason. Because there are people who are now using the Christian faith to promote their own immoral agenda. If you've ever had the privilege of, of visiting the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., you, you'll find preserved there in one of the glass cases a centuries-old Bible known as the Slave Bible. The Slave Bible was a, was a missionary tool that the people who enslaved people of color used to teach people of color to read. But there was this unique feature about the Slave Bible. 90% of the Old Testament was removed from the Slave Bible, and 50% of the New Testament was removed from the slave Bible. Any part of the Bible that said God loved all people and any part of the Bible that said enslaving, oppressing, and marginalizing people was wrong was removed from that slave Bible, which means the part about Joseph being sold into slavery was in the slave Bible. But none of the book of Exodus of how God freed his people from slavery was in that slave Bible, which means Paul's commands, instructions to slaves to obey their master was included in the slave Bible. But the book of Philemon, in which Paul urged a slave master to free his slave from slavery, was not included in the slave Bible. The reason why it's, it's more important today than ever before to contend for the faith is because people have used the faith to promote slavery. People have used the faith to promote patriarchy. To this day, there are people who, under the guise that women need to be obedient to their husbands, will tell women to endure all manner of abuse for the sake of the faith. We need to contend for the faith against that. That there are people 
who will use the Bible to promote white supremacy. Think about it. The Bible has been so whitewashed that people believe that Jesus was white. We need to contend for the fate against white supremacy. We need to contend for the fate against people who will use the fate to promote their own political and social ideologies. Think about how people now are using the faith to promote their own agenda, which is why now more than ever, what Jude told a Christian community to do 2,000 years ago, you and I need to be practicing today. We need to guard the Bible and keep it from those phony Christians who will use the message of the gospel not to promote God's agenda, but to promote their own agenda. And here's the good news. If you take care of God's business, God will take care of your business. If you make it your business to guard the word, God will guard you. The book of Jude begins and ends with a similar assurance. At the beginning of the book of Jude, Jude reminds us not only are we loved and called by God the Father, we are kept for Jesus. We we are protected. We are guarded until we meet Jesus. And, And then Jude ends with a doxology. And in that doxology, Jude reminds us once again that God is able to protect us. It's almost as if Jude is saying, while you are protecting the faith, preserving it from the hands of people who will abuse the faith to promote their own agenda, God will be protecting and defending you. Isn't that good news? That if you take care of God's business, God will take care of your business. Tony Tony Evans tells this story. A man, his wife, and their child were out one day when they were caught caught in a terrible hailstorm. There was massive hail falling from the sky. I, I, I didn't know what hail was coming from Florida until I moved to to New York City, and and I think I've experienced one tiny hailstorm, but but there are portions of America where the hail can be as big as baseballs, and and, and this was the type of hailstorm that they were caught in. Under the deluge of this coming hail, the woman held on to their child, protecting their child from from receiving the brunt of the hailstorm, and the hail fell on her. And and she began to have wounds from the hail. But before the the hail did considerable damage, her husband came over her. And just as she was guarding and protecting her child, her husband was guarding and protecting her. Aren't you glad this morning that you have a God? that if you guard his word and his gospel, he'll also guard you. Will you pray with me this morning?
God, I pray that you would use us to defend your word and your gospel from the people who want to abuse your word and your gospel. That, Father, we would not allow your name to be defamed by so-called Christians who really have an agenda apart from seeing you glorified. But that with all our heart, with all our minds, and, and with all our bodies and strength, we would, as Jude encourages us to do, contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. Thank you for your word. And we pray that you would empower us to protect it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.